1: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, California says it's reviewing the CDC's new guidance on masking. The federal agency surprised many yesterday when it declared that it's safe for fully vaccinated people to go maskless in most indoor settings. The move is raising lots of questions. We'll hear yours. And Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Annette Gordon-Reed is with us to explore the story of Juneteenth, its legacy and influence on her life. Reed, who's from Texas, grapples with the question of whether being a black person and a Texan are in opposition. Join us.
0: This is Forum,
1: I'm Nina Kim. On June 19th, 1865, enslaved Black Americans in Texas were notified of the end of slavery. That was two years after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed and two months after the Confederacy surrendered. On Juneteenth is the new memoir by Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, Annette Gordon-Reed, who joins us now. Dr. Gordon-Reed, thanks so much for joining us. Annette gordon be? The title of your memoir, On Juneteenth, has this lovely double meaning that the reader realizes as they get into the book. On one hand, you're sharing a treatise on Juneteenth, but you're also sharing what you and your family do on Juneteenth. Um, And so I just wanted to start by actually doing both of those things, if we could. First, could you give us more of the historical details of what happened in Galveston on June 19th, 1865? Well,
2: well. Um, Gordon um, Gordon Granger, Granger, Granger was Dr. Texas. Gordon-Reed,
1: I believe your connection yes. is actually quite distorted, we're going to try to get you on another line. And so we'll do that right now. And while we do, I will just remind our listeners that, again, we're talking with Dr. Annette Gordon-Reed, who is Carl M. Loeb University professor at Harvard. Her new memoir is on Juneteenth, and you might know her from her other books, which include The Hemingses of Monticello, which won a Pulitzer Prize and a National Book Award. I should also mention that Dr. Gordon-Reed will be speaking at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco on Wednesday, June 9th at 10am. And I also want to learn from you listeners how you mark Juneteenth And one of the things that Dr. Gordon-Reed talks about in her book on Juneteenth is learning to love a place after learning about its complicated, racist, or terrible history. And wondering how you listeners uh, have managed to do that if you have had to learn to re-love a place after learning its complicated history. You can tell us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. And you can email us at forum at kqed.org. Annette Gordon-Reed, do you have uh, a new connection there? Are you with us?
2: I think I do. Is this better? Much better. Uh, Great. great, Thank
1: you. And you were beginning by telling us the historical details um, that
2: many people may not remember. Yeah. Yes. Well, Gordon Granger was a general in the United States Army. He came to Galveston on that day to tell people there that slavery was over, even though Robert E. Lee had surrendered at Appomattox, the army of the Trans-Mississippi had continued to fight. So the fighting was still going on and they're actually the final battle of the Civil War happened in Texas and the Confederates were victorious, but they surrendered anyway because they understood that the game was up and there was no further than they could go. So Granger comes to Galveston to tell this news and he issues general order number three, which says that slavery is over. And it then says that the former enslaved people would occupy the same plane of of equality with whites. And Mm. that caused a great amount of jubilation among the former slaves, but it also enraged white people. And so it was a time of a mix of celebration and at the same time a great amount of anger. Uh, Some people were whipped for celebrating and hmm. violence, they unleashed a torrent of violence in Texas against the former enslaved people. So it was a it was a mixed bag. It was a frightening time, but a hopeful time.
1: A hopeful time. Do you are you struck by the fact that, that General Granger added that to the announcement essentially about the equality piece of it?
2: Well, it's important because he could have just said slavery's over and you know, go about your business. But talking about equality and I say this in the book, echoes the words in the American Declaration of Independence that talks about all men, presumably all mankind, people are, are, are created equal. And that was the thing that has been obviously a contested point almost up until this point, as we are still trying to opt for, to try to get full and equal citizenship for African-American people. But it was a striking thing for him to have said because he didn't really have to say that.
1: How did you mark Juneteenth growing up in Texas?
2: Well, it was uh, a summer day, and it was an occasion for picnics, for barbecuing, and you know, kids throwing firecrackers. I'm always amazed to think about the fact that I was allowed to play with. We were allowed to play with firecrackers <laughs> when we were below ten years <laughs> old. I couldn't imagine that with my kids now. But you know, it was it was a day of celebration. The older people. Someone like I, my great grandmother lived until I was about eleven years old, and my grandmother and she knew my great great grandmother, who had been born enslaved and was freed mm-hmm. as a little girl at with her mother by her father, um, and they knew people who had been in slavery. So this was very close to the older generations in, in my family. So it was a combination of celebration, but also thinking about the people who had lived under that system.
1: Yes. I, I love that you admit early on in your book that you were initially annoyed, <clears throat> basically, when you heard that people outside Texas also claimed the holiday. Where did you realize that that irritation came from?
2: Well, I, I think it came from, always thinking of something that was special to us. It was special to black Texans. And when I was growing up, it wasn't even a holiday that I think, as far as I knew, I don't know that many white people actually celebrated it. It was made a a state holiday in 1980. But what I'm talking about in the 60s and 70s, this was something that was black people in Texas. And it made us special. But that was, I should say, a momentary feeling of peak. Uh, I, I understood pretty soon, pretty soon after that, that it was a good thing that other people celebrated. And I know that a lot of Texans who, people who left Texas and went to other places, the diaspora uh, of Texans, Black Texans, and they took the holiday with them. So it made sense that it, you know, the seeds were planted in other places. And I, and I reckon myself, I reconcile myself to that. I think it's a great thing that more people celebrate it now.
1: Yeah. Do you, do you connect it at all with also just your affection or love of Texas?
2: <laughs> well, it's it's one of those, it, again, it's sort of the quirky things. You know, Texas is seen as this kind of quirky place. And this was one, you know, one quirky <laughs> thing where uh, the Emancipation Proclamation had been in operation in other places. Now, granted, it, it wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't an operation in Texas because the Army kept fighting, uh, fighting it. But, you know, once again, we were singled out in some fashion to be different from the rest of the the country.
1: So you grew up in East Texas, and two years after Brown v. Board of Education, you integrated... Uh, your school in East Texas—it it was mm-hmm. a great story about how, without any fanfare, your dad basically dropped you off at the white school. Uh, and as they told you later, they liked the academic programs better, even though your mom was actually a teacher at Washington, which was a black school. Can you mm-hmm. just talk a little bit about what that experience was like for you as a child?
2: Yes. Well, actually, it's about ten years after Brown. They had been—oh, ten years. I'm sorry. Resisting. They were resisting um, integration in the South. And they'd come up with something called a freedom of choice plan where white people were supposed to pick the white schools for their kids and black parents would pick the black schools for their kids. My parents decided to do something different. And they sent me to Al- Anderson elementary school, which was a white school. And it was a tough time. There were children there who were nice to me, but there were children who were not nice. I should say that the teachers were, couldn't have been better couldn't have been more supportive of me and i actually after i wrote the book and i was thinking about this much more and i i don't discuss this in the book but it occurred to me that because my mother was a teacher that this may have influenced the way they treated me you know the way they responded to me but it was a a time of being on display i recall um, educators coming to the door and standing in the door and looking at me and looking at me in the interactions with the kids in my classroom, to, you know, to see what this was like. And, you know, it was uncomfortable in lots of ways. I understood that it was something important that was being done. My mother said at one point I broke out in hives. I don't remember that, hmm. but I do remember you know, it's like everything, you kind of fixate much more on, you know, the few negative things, but you focus more on the positive things that happen. And and I did make friends there uh, that I liked a lot and made it easier for me uh, as the time went on. That's a lot
1: of pressure, though. I mean, e- even though you're saying that that you don't necessarily, that you broke out in hives, you know, sort of a reflection of, of probably the pressure that you felt, but did you, did you... Were you able to articulate this pressure to sort of represent, you you use the word display, so I, I just find that mm-hmm, really, yeah. I'm struck by that word.
2: Well, it's interesting because I knew even at that age that there was something, I wouldn't have called it a racial problem, but I understood that there were difficulties between the races, and I had a vague notion that what I was doing along with my family i suppose was a way of trying to deal with that problem mm. i you know it wasn't a conscious this is something i would have understood it better later on but as a kid i did know that this was related to racial tension and in the 60s on the news everywhere around it was there was a sense that black people were kind of on the move in a way that something important things were happening and i vaguely Understood that my mother's one of my mother's aunts who lived in um, Houston was very extravagant, and she went out to Sackowitz, which was the really ritzy department store in Houston at the time, and she bought lots and lots of clothes for me, and boxes of dresses, and tights, and hats, and so forth, and you know things like that. I knew that this was considered a special occasion, <laughs> that this was a special mm-hmm. moment, so. Yeah, there was pressure, but I felt, you know, I, I felt that I, I went about what I was doing, namely learning, you know, going to school, learning, uh, becoming a better reader, doing all those kinds of things. I thought that that was my task, and that's what I, I, I stuck to.
1: We're talking with historian Annette Gordon-Reed, university professor at Harvard. Her new memoir is on Juneteenth, and you, our listeners, are invited to join our conversation. 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. What are your thoughts or questions for Annette Gordon-Reed? You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. I'm Mina Kim. Stay with us. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Pulitzer Prize winning historian Annette Gordon-Reed about her new memoir titled On Juneteenth. And your listeners are invited to join the conversation. How do you mark Juneteenth? Give us a call 866-733-6786. What do you want to ask Professor Annette Gordon-Reed Email us, forum at kqed.org. Reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED forum. And Dr. Gordon-Reed, before, we, uh, before the break, we were talking about your experience integrating your school in East Texas. One of the things that you talk about in the book is that you also felt like you were welcomed by your teachers because you say that they seemed committed to rising above the town's history. Can you give us a sense of that history, which... It was really just a, a history of absolute terror against Black people.
2: Well, Conroe always had a reputation, It long had a reputation as being very tough on the question of race. There had been lynchings there um, in, the, in, in the early 20th century. Uh, in the 1920s, a man was burned at the stake on court on courthouse grounds, alive, obviously, on, on the um, um, uh, courthouse square there, and there had been a famous murder where a man who had been accused of raping a white woman, actually, ironically enough, in the town where I was born, Livingston, uh, and was put on trial. It, my grandfather talked about this. Uh, it was sort of a legendary thing that happened, uh, he had been taken out to the woods by the Texas Rangers and tied to a tree and whipped until he confessed. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court, which I didn't know until until I was working on this book. And the court found that his confession was a violation of due process, surprise, surprise. Uh, and it went back down for a new trial. And while he was on trial, he was shot by the husband of the woman in the courtroom in front of the judge, jury. Spectators, everybody, and he was acquitted of the murder. The, the husband was acquitted of the murder of this person, even though this happened in broad daylight in, in the middle of a trial. Um, and things like that gave the town a reputation as pretty, really rough on Black people. And, and I had relatives who did not want to stay in the town overnight. Because of that. And they were in other parts of Texas, but they thought that this particular place was really, really hard. So when I'm going to school in the mid 60s and integrating, you know, the integrating the public schools, it was a place when I went to the doctor, there was a separate rating room for us. When I went to the movies with my brother, we we had to sit in the balcony. Um, Forgive me, Dr. Gordon-Reed. The
1: phone line again is distorting. So we're going to see if we can try to improve that. Uh, And as we do, again, I want to invite listeners to to join the conversation with Dr. Gordon-Reed, Carl M. Loeb, University Professor at Harvard. Her memoir is on Juneteenth. And we're asking you, our listeners, to tell us how you mark Juneteenth, but also... If you've had the experience of relearning to love a place after hearing about its racist or terrible history, and you can tell us at 866-733-6786. You can tweet us at KQED Forum or get in touch on Facebook at KQED Forum. You can also email us at forum at org. And uh, I also want to let listeners know that uh, Dr. Gordon-Reed will be at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco on Wednesday, June 9th. And I want to read just a little bit about uh, what we were talking about earlier with regard to on Juneteenth and (laughs) Annette Gordon-Reed's sense of proprietariness around the holiday. She writes, my proprietary attitude about Juneteenth quickly disappeared. Rather than keeping the holiday to ourselves, Texans have been in the forefront of trying to make Juneteenth a national holiday. As I think of it, it's really a very Texas move to say that something that happened in our state was of enough consequence to the entire nation that it should be celebrated nationwide. That's from Annette Gordon Reed's new memoir on Juneteenth. Annette Gordon Reed, are you there? Are you back?
2: Yes, I am. Is this? (laughs) I don't know what's going on. (laughs) We're gonna keep Uh, trying. Yeah, we're not sure either.
1: When we test the line, it's usually okay, but then this occasionally happens to us. But uh, Mm -hmm. you were talking about just the terrible, the terrible history and that that very sad story um, as well.
2: Yes, I was. I was saying that even though I knew that this was a tough time. I didn't feel like I was by myself because I understood that Black people all over the country were doing similar kinds of things. And, you know, that made me, that gave me a sense of comfort.
1: One of the things that you do grapple with, though, it's whether or not being a Black person and a Texan are in opposition. Can you just talk a little bit about why you process that and also really ultimately where you landed?
2: Well, and when I say... Obviously, if you're born in Texas and you're black, you're a Texan. But what I really meant was to sort of accept the larger than life, special notion of Texas uh, as a black person. Could you, you know, what what parts of the myth could you hold on to? What parts of the myth did you have to reject? And I, I think I process it by talking about my family. That what I love about Texas, it's. Has to do with my family history, the struggles that my family engaged in over time, the hopes that they had for their children in this particular place that belonged to them. You know, it's it just because we were mistreated there, because they were mistreated there, it didn't really mean that this was not our space. We're Americans and we are Texans. And we've always tried to claim that, and I think that we should. That's, that's, that's how I reconcile it, is that just because there were people in that place who were unkind and oppressive towards Blacks doesn't mean that the place belonged to them, that it didn't belong to us as well. I mean, we worked on the land. We helped build the state. We had the hopes and dreams from our fa- for our families that other people did. And we deserve to be to claim the place that, you know, our foremothers and forefathers labored and lived and died in.
1: You mentioned the myth of Texas. What is this myth?
2: Well, part of the myth is the myth of specialness (laughs) that we started (laughs) off talking about, that I had this proprietary sense about this place where Things happen that didn't happen other places, the bigness of Texas. And of course, Alaska came and burst a lot of people's bubble on that <laughs> score. But in the on the mainland, on the lower 40, 48, um, the largest state and a place where uh, being with a sense of humor, uh, wanting to brag about. And that's that's part of being uh, about being a Texan that I think lots of people embrace, even Black people who are very, very aware of the problems that Texas has in the past, and even now, obviously, Uh, that sense of uh, of wanting to boast about your home state is very much a part of who we are. I mean, I encounter, it's very rare when you encounter somebody who's from Texas that you don't find out that they're from Texas. (laughs) And I meet people from other states that you don't know that. That's not something that anybody <laughs> says. You can, be, you can know them for, for months or years, and you don't really know where they're from. But Texans will tell you that pretty pretty quickly. Well, Julie ask: were there
1: other Black children at your school, or were you the only one?
2: Well, um, the following year, another girl joined me there. Uh, we, were in this, we were still in this freedom of choice plan. But in 1968, wow. the Supreme Court struck down freedom of choice plans, and the schools had to integrate. And then their black people, more black people came to Anderson, more black people, my brothers who had been at the black school, Booker T. Washington, went to white schools. And there was some resentment on the part of members of the black community about that. They had loved their school. Booker T. Washington was a community school. People knew one another. They went to church together. They You know, they were their parents were friends and so forth. And there was a lot of hostility focused towards me because some of the kids got lost in translation and they sort of got it lost in translation and thought that I had been the catalyst for all of this. And I had taken away their school. And, you know, I talk in the book about this this kid hitting me. Um, because, and I didn't know who he was, but he knew who I was, and I was the person who had brought all of this on uh, on the black community. so there was some ambivalence about it. that's the thing people don't think about as much with with um integration that one of the things that happened is that many of the teachers were taken out, many of the black teachers were taken out of the classroom, and so black students lost role models. Mm -hmm. My mother remained in the classroom, but uh, other teachers didn't. And so the kids were integrated, but the teaching pool was not.
1: Early on in your memoir, you also observed that that Texas is a white man or the image of Texas is (laughs) a white man. Can you talk about that? Mm
2: -hmm. Well, I think when people think about Texas, they think about a cowboy, maybe gunfighters, but you think of cattle ranches and that's really West Texas and most black people, actually most Texans live in East Texas, but West Texas that is relatively devoid of black people. There are black people there obviously, but not in the concentrations that exist in the East is the stand-in for Texas. And uh, even though cowboys, many of the cowboys, the early cowboys were in fact black uh, men, uh, the image of that's sort of put forth by Hollywood is of white guys out on the range, a lonesome cowboy. And so that if that is Texas, then what does it mean? And this book is sort of exploring that. What does it mean if you're not a white man, but you are a Texas? Yes. If you are a Texan. Is
1: this an image, though, that you feel like is an outsider's tendency like Hollywood? Or do you mean it as more of a deliberately perpetuated mythology by white people in power in the state of texas
2: well i think it's i think it's both i think certainly the stephen f austin who was the father who's considered the father of texas and brought the first you know recognized colonies into uh settlements into texas people who were slave owners many of them were enslavers and that's not the slave owner is not a palatable I would say image for Texas, the cowboy, the oil man those are easier to sell they 're more comfortable and comforting than the plantation owner and even though the plantation owner these were people came to Texas not to become cowboys in the west, they came to grow cotton and to grow sugarcane the the crops of of the plantation, fueling the plantation economy. So I, I think it's deliberate sort of tamping down on the connection to slavery and Hollywood obviously doesn't want to, didn't want to deal with that. They could, they could show slave plantations in Mississippi and Georgia, Tara and stuff like that. There's no need to do that in Texas. Hmm. Texas is about, it's about the West. Um, and so the two go together. What, the desires of the leadership of Texas and the desires of Hollywood fixate on the cowboy and the oil man. In well, my- the movie, Giant is the, <laughs> obviously the you can't you can't have a conversation without, about Texas without bringing up Giant, but that the image is fixed in that movie.
1: Well, Michael tweets. Please point out that Juneteenth was the end of slavery in the former Confederacy. Slavery in Union states like Delaware remained legal until the Thirteenth Amendment was ratified.
2: Yes, yes, it was. Uh, th- that's that's the case, in, and I don't. In the book, I make that make that point that slavery continues until um, December to the, the amendments ratified, December eighteen sixty five. But this is the end. I think it's important because it's the end of the organized war effort (laughs) to maintain the institution of slavery, that this is the end of that, the defeat of that made Juneteenth possible. And the legal measure is absolutely important. But I think the end of when when the Confederate army gives up, then the law takes over at that point.
1: And so you support June 19th becoming a national holiday that, that that is the day that would be sort of more broadly known as the day, uh, that slavery ended or celebrating the end of slavery post the Confederate surrender, even if it's not necessarily what happened across the United States at that point.
2: Well, I think you could, it could, it could become a that national holiday with that caveat. Mm. I think this is still, I think it's a, The point that I'm making about the end of the war effort and the fighting um, is central, particularly since African-American soldiers were pivotal to the war effort. And there's something, I think, very important to the idea of this action coming after the Confederates give up. Um, I suppose it's, you know, technically there are other things. People think about the Emancipation Proclamation on January you know, January 1st might be a good day or the end of December, as as he's talking about with the ratification of the amendment. But there's a certain path dependency here. I think all but I think three or four states already have some kind of recognition of Juneteenth. Um, It's people, people know it, people uh, have been celebrating it. It's in the summertime. <laughs> it's a perfect family holiday. It makes it's sense. I mean, you know, if we want to start an education campaign to try to make, you know, the end of December the date, I, uh, I don't know that it's worth that. And January 1st already has you know, It's New Year's Day, <laughs> right. it's the Haitian Revolution, you know, it's it, there are any number of things that are going on on that particular day. And you don't want to pick a day where you're going to be permanently aggrieved because people aren't paying attention to it because they're doing other stuff, and you don't have that with June 19th.
1: Mm. And the other question I have is, is June 19th and the 4th of July, are they connected for you in any way? <laughs>
2: Well, you know, it was, and when I was a kid, it was sort of a one-two punch, you know, to have (laughs) the June 19th and then July 4th. And July 4th was the day, as I said, I didn't think that whites celebrated June 19th, but everybody celebrated the 4th. And some Black people celebrated celebrated the 5th as uh, in a way to sort of have a cautionary tale about the ideals of the 4th of July. But they are related for the reason that we said when we started out. Uh, with the general order talking about equality and that that should be the natural state of of citizen, the citizenry in uh, in the United States of America. So they do have this connection but June 19th is sort of a in and it's a way a sort of rebuke or a reminder about what was not you know what was left out of the 4th of July. So they they go together. It's a way for I think reflecting on on the 4th through the 19th is a good way to talk huh. about America's unfulfilled promise.
1: Yes, yeah, so the 4th is sort of still the aspiration. The 19th is the reminder of, of yes the steps to get there and, and where we have failed it. Um, what do you make now of the fact that more people, different races, more races, white people celebrate Juneteenth?
2: I think there may be among some whites a desire to recognize the injustice that was done during slavery. I mean we are supposed to be in a a nationwide reckoning of, on race although this these moves have taken place before all of this right now. But I think it's about the greater the greater amount of education that people have about the institution of slavery through high school, through colleges. I mean, the historiography of slavery in the United States in some ways is, is the crown jewel of American historiography. So many good books, so many good articles, so much. And I think it's greater awareness has brought the desire to commemorate.
1: Well, Dr. Annette Gordon-Reed, I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Sorry for the technical difficulties. Well,
1: I don't think it was anyone's <laughs> fault. And thank you for writing those with us. I'm sorry about those as well. Thanks to our listeners for, for listening and for their, their thoughtful questions. Annette Gordon-Reed's new memoir is on Juneteenth. Her other books include The Hemingses of Monticello, which won a Pulitzer Prize and a National Book Award. We'll be talking about the CDC's new masking guidance right after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim.